Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was, which makes me wonder, if you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there. On True Scary Story. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about awful accidents and stifled signals. I'm your host for the evening, Otis Gyrie, Filling in for my good friend Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Kevin David Anderson and Warren Benedetto, our voice talents Nate DeFort, Michelle Kane, Steve Gray, Melissa Medina, and myself, Otis Chirey. Now, get your tickets ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
Our first tale this evening is written by Kevin David Anderson and is performed by Michelle Kane, Olivia Steele, and Nate DeFord. The bleakness of winter has thankfully left us at this point. Many plants can grow, the sun is out, and the roads are much safer to drive on. This tale takes us back to the sleet and snow, where a couple finds themselves in one heck of a situation due to unfavorable icy conditions on the highway. Now, without further ado, I present to you, Get Away From Me. Kevin slammed on the brakes of his rental car. The black ice, something he'd only read about, allowed the two-door 88 hatchback to slide 30 degrees in the wrong direction. In the passenger seat, his wife Hope put both hands on the dashboard and screamed, a sound that didn't help Kevin get control of the situation. He spun the wheel, overcorrecting. The 30-degree slide became 90 in the blink of an eye. They skidded forward, sideways in the middle of the two-lane highway, with only the moonlight to illuminate the snow and pine tree outlining the road. The eastbound lane banked to the left, and the car continued to slide straight ahead, toward the shoulder like a marble rolling on an uneven table. Shit, 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 Kevin shouted, hoping that expletives would somehow get the car's attention and it would then behave. It didn't. The back tires left the black ice and the road, and the sound of rubber sliding on gravel echoed all around them. A muffled thud like a child jumping into a pile of leaves came with a suddenness as the back end of the hatchback buried itself into a snowbank. Silence and stillness, two things that seemed impossible only a second ago, surrounded them as the world outside stopped spinning. Kevin looked over at Hope. Are you okay? The panicked expression on her face began to fade, and it looked as if she was trying to find words. Her mouth opened, but nothing came out. Hope, are you... What are we doing here? She finally managed. Kevin was taken aback by her question. Honestly, you have no idea how to drive in the snow. We're San Diego people. It was true. Kevin had never even driven in the mountains, let alone the mountains in winter. But he thought the payoff for the surprise he was trying to give his wife would be worth the gamble. The surprise was his attempt to rekindle their once vibrant, exciting relationship. The one they had before the wedding, before the mortgage, before kids, PTA meetings, and Saturday morning kids' soccer games. Back when it was just them. I hate surprises, Hope said. Now, I'm not going any further until you tell me why we had to leave the kids with my mother, pack, fly to Portland, a city we've never been to, rent the cheapest car at Avis, just to... She held her hands up, as if holding aloft a cloud of confusion. Do whatever we're doing. Kevin sighed, leaned forward and rested his forehead on the steering wheel, which was much colder than he imagined it would be. I thought it would be romantic. How is driving me into the middle of nowhere romantic? It's not nowhere, Kevin sat up. I just wanted... 
He had planned not to explain this, just show her their destination, and he hoped everything would come flooding back. Remember our first date? He tried to smile, but it felt more like a chilly grin. She scowled at him. I am not having sex with you in this car. What? No. I mean the first date where we actually went somewhere. We went to the movies. You wanted to see The Shining. It had just come out. You remember, Kevin said. I remember you were too cheap to buy dinner and fed me popcorn. Yes, yes, I'm cheap. But remember the movie? Of course I do. Chills me to even think about it. But I loved it. You didn't even like horror before that. Now you're a huge fan. She smiled. True. We even went back to see it two more times. I know. Once we even watched the movie. I do miss drive-ins. Hope's cheeks blushed. I'm still not having sex with you in this car. Kevin took in her icy blue eyes that he found so amazing. They were cold and warm at the same time and made him want to tell her things that he could never find the words to say. I just want to go back to when we were like that. Those college kids on a first date. She smiled. That I can understand. But what does it have to do with Oregon or horror movies? Not horror movies. The Shining. She shook her head. Still not following. The hotel. The actual hotel. Her forehead wrinkled a bit. The Stanley Hotel in Colorado? No, that's the hotel that inspired King to write the book. I couldn't afford that trip. You are so cheap. No argument, but remember where Kubrick shot the movie? A hotel in Yosemite. There was an article in Fangoria. Kevin sighed. He didn't think it would take this long to explain. Yes, the interior shots were done at Atawando Hotel in Yosemite. They were booked, but the exterior shots were taken at the Timberline Lodge, which is... Kevin pointed a cold finger up the road. About 30 minutes that way. And that's where we're staying? Hope said. Kevin detected at least 50% less anger and maybe 10% more excitement in her voice. It wasn't much, but... It gave him hope. Yeah. See? Romantic. Romantic? The Shining? You do realize the only thing you and I do together anymore is a few times a month, after putting the kids to bed, we stay up to watch a horror movie. And sometimes it leads to other things, he wanted to add. It's not always just you and me. What do you mean? I think our daughter sneaks out of her room and watches from the top of the stairs. Horror movies can't be good for her development. We'll find her a good therapist, Kevin said. So what do you say? When we get to the hotel, I will say and do things to you I haven't done in years. Neither one of us are that flexible anymore, she said. And what do you need to say? Kevin didn't expect the opportunity to present itself like this, but here it was. He looked longingly into her cold and warm eyes and began to say, I love... The glare of oncoming headlights engulfed their car, 
They had less than a second to brace as a Cadillac struck the front end of their car, which had been sticking out across the narrow road's median. The driver of the car must have tried to turn at the last moment because it was the tail end of the Cadillac that clipped the front of the rental. Kevin and Hope jolted back as their car went deeper into the snow. Kevin caught sight of the car as it slid by, heading for the opposite side of the road. Moonlight bounced off its rear bumper as it went over the edge of the road, sliding like a toboggan down the slope and out of sight. Kevin turned to Hope. I'm all right, she said. They got out, their feet sinking in the snow. Kevin stepped onto the ice-covered asphalt. His boat shoes had little to no traction, but he managed to get to the other side and peered down the slope. He expected to see nothing in the cold darkness, but the moonlight illuminated the thick white layer of snow blanketing the slope. Following the tire tracks, he spied two bright red taillights. The Cadillac had traveled nearly 30 yards down the side of a mountain, its descent only stopping when it collided with a pine tree so large it rose into the night like a Japanese movie monster blocking out the stars. Oh shit, Hope said. We gotta see if we can help. How? The snow could be ten feet deep. I'll walk in the tire tracks. That might help, Kevin said, unsure if it would. He turned to his wife. Stay here. Wave down any car that comes by. Maybe they'll have a car phone. If so, call for help. Okay, I wish we had a car phone. Kevin glowered at Hope, knowing she was referring to his inability to pay for any kind of a rental upgrade. She looked back at their rental, which clearly needed several thousand dollars worth of repairs. I'm guessing you didn't get the insurance, either. Honey, there are people down there needing help. Let's stay focused. She turned to him. I know. Please be careful. You're a cheap bastard, but you're my cheap bastard. She kissed his cheek, and it surprised him. Not just the gesture, but how cold her lips were. It was then that he noticed her shivering. Maybe go wait in the car. He took his jacket off and handed it to her. She took it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. No, I'll, I'll wait here. Kevin turned toward the slope, and in canvas shoes and no jacket, he stepped into the snow. It took three minutes to hike 
slide and fall down to the Cadillac, its engine still idling. Cold and tired, he made his way to the driver's side window. A woman, jet black hair, bloody scalp, slumped forward on the steering wheel. The door was buckled and the glass window had slid down. White cracks ran across its surface. Hey, uh, hello? No response. Kevin tried the door, but it would not budge. He put his ungloved fingers on top of the window, hoping to push it down further, but the entire thing came apart in his hand. He tossed the glass away. Hey! Reaching in, he gently eased her off the steering wheel and sat her back. Her eyes popped wide open, terrified. It's okay, Kevin said, pulling his hands back into what he thought was an unthreatening gesture. You've had an accident. Can you move? Even as Kevin asked, he knew the answer. The area where her legs were was completely caved in. The engine had been pushed back into the driver's compartment, and the women's legs had to be not only crushed, but were pinning her to the spot. Kevin couldn't imagine the pain. But the pain didn't seem to bother her, and she wiggled in the seat, trying to free herself as if it were only a piece of her clothing hung up on some protruding objects that tethered her to the spot. Okay, maybe you should just sit still. My wife is going to flag down a car and... I can't be here, she said. I need to go. Kevin was caught off guard. I don't think either of us has a choice in the matter at the moment. You don't understand. It was supposed to be a cure. What cure? You sick? She laughed. Kevin couldn't believe it. Legs crushed, head bleeding, and she actually laughed. Sick. It's a curse. Her head rolled back. And all they did with their theories and science is accelerate the damn thing. It happened so fast now. So unbelievably fast. Kevin had no idea what she was mumbling about. Okay, so maybe... It's a virus now. A high-speed virus. There's not even time to... She looked around, suddenly, as if remembering where she was. I need to get to my cabin. She struggled in her seat, leaning into the door. If it were possible, Kevin could imagine the woman tearing her legs off to get out. He stepped close. He had to calm her down. Listen, it's going to be all right. I need to go now. Her voice had suddenly become different. Angrier, yes. But there's something else. Something deeper. His mind raced. He had no idea what to do. Then he noticed a phone. Hey, is that a car phone? Sure it was. Most of the cars he couldn't afford came with car phones nowadays. Cadillacs, BMWs, Porsches. Let's call for help. Can you hand it to me? She ignored him and continued to struggle in the seat, tearing at her seatbelt. He needed to get to the phone. He could go around and try to get it from the other side. But there was a Godzilla-sized pine tree to battle on that side. No, he just needed to reach in and grab it. He leaned in and pushed her back with his forearm and reached for the receiver. Just as his fingers grasped the phone, the woman leaned into him, hard. Off balance, he became momentarily pinned. Her weight enveloped his upper body, and he felt her breath on his neck. Then came a sensation he didn't at first recognize. Her tongue 
wet, long, cold, dragged over his jugular, a snake slithering across his marrow, and it shook his soul. He buried a scream and wrenched himself back. Sharp edges scraped his skin as he extricated from the car. He landed in the snow and sat up fast. Jesus, lady, what's your issue? Her head swiveled chaotically, as if on broken joints to face him. Her eyes were yellow, glistening. Her brow bubbled like boiling water reshaping its surface. But it was her teeth that caught most of his notice. The canines protruded down, becoming ivory daggers. In a voice that wasn't very human, she screamed, Get away from me! Horrified, Kevin sunk deeper into the snow. Fuck this! He pushed himself up, then stood. Taking his first step, he glanced back. The woman writhed in the seat like a frenzied animal, shaking the entire vehicle. As the sound of breaking glass echoed in the night, he turned away and headed up. After ten steps, the impact of the hikes he never went on and the gym membership he didn't have took their toll. He was so out of shape, and going up seemed ten times more difficult than sliding down. He stopped a moment to catch his breath, leaning forward, feeling like he might puke. He noticed blood in the snow around his shoe. Moonlight glistened crimson on his hand. His palm was bleeding, bad enough to need stitches. He tried to remember if he'd cut himself on the window when he pulled on the glass, but a new sensation stung his neck, like a thousand needles repeatedly piercing his skin. He reached up to feel around and instantly knew something was wrong. His neck was moist, and he couldn't tell how much, but some of his flesh was missing. That bitch bit me. Kevin, what happened? Came a call from above. He wasn't sure what she could see from her vantage point, but he tucked his blood-soaked hand behind his back. Nothing! I'm all right! Is that your blood? Go back to the car, Kevin shouted. I'll be up in a minute. Stop telling me what to do! What is happening? Shouting uphill in the cold at his wife was depleting him of the energy he needed to get back up, so he just waved his hand and started hiking. He could hear her shouting down, but... He didn't have the energy to answer. He took in deep, cold breaths, and his lungs began to hurt. Halfway up, he had to stop again and drop to his knees. His heart pounded in his chest, an overworked engine ready to explode, and as he waited for his blood pump to slow, he felt a new sensation. Not new, really, but rather very recent. The stinging of piercing needles he'd felt in his neck had migrated into his head, shoulders, and arms. Tiny jabs into his brain, his muscles, his very bones. It was painful and rejuvenating at the same time. The two sensations came together, intertwining to create something in between. Something new. My God, what is that? Hope shouted. Kevin saw that she was looking past him, down toward the crashed Cadillac. The sounds of knife blades scraping on metal echoed behind him. He fought the urge to look back. Deep inside him, he already knew what he would see. With new energy, 
he pushed through the last few yards up the hill. When he finally made it to the road, he collapsed. His legs were shaking, and he felt his skeleton vibrate like a tremor before an earthquake. He should be cold, freezing, but he wasn't. He could feel his skin thicken as if he were growing an insulating coat of his own flesh. Hope rushed toward him, and Kevin felt her approach before he saw her. Something told him that she shouldn't come near, and he held up his hands to keep her away. She clearly misinterpreted his gesture as she grabbed him and attempted to pull him to his feet. He writhed backward, sinking into the snow. Kevin looked into her eyes, still as blue as the day they'd met. A cold, icy blue, but still somehow warm. He wanted to say, I love you. He hadn't said it in so long. It would be so wonderful to say it one more time, even to hear himself say it. But as he felt a violent upheaval in his mouth, canines spearing downward, pinching his tongue, he knew there was something more important he needed to say. Get away from me! She stared at him. He knew she couldn't see him anymore. The look on her face said as much. Her icy blue eyes instantly lost their warmth. They were just cold and fearful. She tried to turn and flee, but fell hard on the black ice. She scrambled to find her footing, but the ice fought back, taking her down. She began to crawl, panic streaking her face. Kevin rose onto his haunches, a position he rarely found himself in. He loved how this felt. There was a howl, long and deep, coming from far down the slope, and he felt as if he should answer, but wasn't sure how. His wife continued to move away, almost up on her feet. Kevin felt the need to follow, pursue like he did when they were young. He moved on all fours. Hope looked back and screamed. Get away! Kevin, get away! Kevin lunged at her, seizing her ankle in a clawed hand. For so long, he tried to find the words to say that he wanted to hold her and never let her go. Now with words replaced by growls, he need only express the sentiment. Just hold on. And he did hold on to her, never letting go for as long as she lived. I hope you enjoyed Get Away From Me, as written by Kevin David Anderson and performed by Michelle Kane, Olivia Steele, and Nate DeFord. Author Kevin David Anderson was born in Indiana and currently lives and writes speculative fiction in Southern California. Before becoming a writer and active member of the HWA, Anderson earned a B.A. in Mass Communications, TCOM, with a focus on media production from CSUF, Fresno State, and worked as a marketing professional for more than a decade, during which he managed award-winning campaigns for both television and radio. Anderson's debut novel, the geeky cult zombie classic, Night of the Living Trekkies, 
from Quirk Books, the publisher of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, is a funny, offbeat zombie novel that explores the pop culture carnage that ensues when the undead crash a Star Trek convention. Publishers Weekly gave Night of the Living Trekkies a starred review, and the Washington Post listed it as one of the top five zombie novels of 2010. Nate DeFord is a writer, producer, director, and voice actor who splits his time between Detroit and Chicago. He also performs over on the Creepy Podcast, which you can hear by going to www.creepypod.com. We're so thankful to have him share his talents with us. You can hear more of Michelle Kane's work on the Creepy Podcast as well. Our second tale of the evening is written by Warren Benedetto and is performed by Steve Gray, Melissa Medina, and myself, Otis Jiry. They say that technology is often life-saving, and nothing's closer to the truth in this case. Now, without further ado, I present to you No Signal. No Signal by Warren Benedetto Gravel crunched under the tires of John's rust-scarred Dodge pickup as he sped down the dirt driveway and skidded to a stop in front of Matt's trailer home. The early morning air was already hissing with humidity. It was thunderstorm weather. They'd be lucky if they made it to lunchtime without getting doused. John pinched the front of his dark blue coverall and flapped it against his chest, creating a breeze to cool his sweat-slicked skin. Come on. He looked at his watch, then balled up his fist and thumped it against the center of the steering wheel. The truck's horn gave a sharp bleat. He called out the window. Yo, Matt, let's go! The trailer home's flimsy screen door flew open, its torn screen flapping in its frame. Matt's wife, Vanessa, stormed out onto the porch. Her hair was a tousled rat's nest. The belt of her terry cloth bathrobe was knotted too loosely, offering a glimpse of the underside of one sagging breast dark purple rings encircled her eyes. The fuck, John? She hissed. You're gonna wake the baby. As if on cue, the distinctive wail of a hungry newborn rose within the trailer. Shit, I just got her to sleep. Vanessa sagged against the railing, defeated. Sorry, Ness. Gotta hurry if we're gonna beat the storm. He almost ready? I'm here, I'm here. Matt slipped past Vanessa and ducked out of the trailer, zipping his overall with one hand while lugging a large toolbox with the other. At six foot four, he towered over his diminutive wife. She looked up at him with a pained expression. Please don't be gone too long. Matt leaned down and planted a kiss on his wife's cheek. I won't. He bounded down the steps, slung his toolbox into the back of the pickup, then climbed into the passenger seat and closed the door. Vanessa motioned for him to lower the window, ducking to see him in the truck as the glass slid down. Text me before you go up? Will do. And when you get down? Matt gave her a tight smile. Sure. Okay. Vanessa shifted her gaze to John. Take good care of him. So where are we headed? Matt asked as John steered the truck down the two-lane highway. Dense forests lined both sides of the road. They passed a blue information sign. Next gas, 23 miles. Guess. 
John pulled a work tablet from the truck's center console and handed it to Matt. No, Matt said in disbelief as he took the tablet and turned it on. Again? A map view filled the screen. It showed all the cell towers in the area, along with the signal radius of each. At the center of the map was a single tower icon with no radius around it, indicating a signal-free dead zone in the middle of the forest. What the hell is wrong with that thing? I wish I knew. Someone's gotta be fucking with it. Or it's cursed. Or that, Matt agreed. He tucked the tablet back into the console. You check the news? John shook his head. I don't want to know. Matt picked up his phone and began scrolling. After a moment, he stopped, his eyes scanning as he read. He cursed under his breath. Damn it. John's heart sank. The two words confirmed what he already suspected. How many? Girl and a guy. Hikers. And the phones? Same thing. He began reading from the article. As with the previous victims, multiple attempts to call for help failed to go through due to lack of cellular service in the area. He stopped reading. This is so fucked. He made a disgusted noise, then rolled down the window and spat into the wind. They drove in silence for a few minutes before he spoke again. His tone was unusually subdued. It's not our fault, right? John furrowed his brow. What's not? You know. He held up his phone displaying the news article about the murders. Of course not. Because maybe they'd still be alive. Bro, it's, it's not our fault. That's crazy. If they could have gotten signal. If they could have called for help. And the axe-wielding maniac, chasing them through the woods. Is that our fault, too? No. Exactly. John glanced at his friend. Matt looked like he was on the verge of tears. In almost ten years, John had never seen the guy get so emotional. Even when he broke his ankle during lacrosse playoffs senior year, he had remained stoic. You okay? John asked. Yeah. Matt took a ragged breath. I guess this whole thing just hits different now that we have Bella. I can't imagine losing a kid like that. It's just... <laughs> he coughed then wiped the back of his hand across his eyes. Fuck. Sorry. Matt peered through the windshield at the tall, needle-thin cell tower protruding high above the tree line in the distance. Let's fix the thing for good this time, okay? John put on his blinker and pulled off the main highway onto a dirt service road. A sign warned that they were entering a restricted area, property of American Cellular Corp. The truck's worn suspension bounced and creaked over the uneven surface as it drove deeper into the woods. Ten minutes later, they arrived at the base of a 500-foot-tall cell tower. All right, John said as he put the truck in park. Let's do this. The two men jumped out of the truck and began strapping on their climbing gear. Repairing cell towers was a dangerous job. The most dangerous job in America, according to BuzzFeed. The amount of climbing the job required depended on the type of tower. Some had to be scaled right from the ground level, others had elevators that ran most of the way up, only requiring a climb of 40 to 50 feet to reach the top. The tower they were repairing today was one of the latter. Unfortunately, 
The tower was also the epicenter of an enormous, active crime scene that spanned several square miles of the surrounding forest. Over the last few months, a series of brutal murders had taken place in an area roughly analogous to the cell phone dead zone on John's job map. Every time the cell signal went down, there was another murder. Or maybe it was the other way around. Nobody really knew. But since the tower was in John's assigned region, he and Matt were the ones on the hook to fix it whenever it went down. John tightened the chest strap on his climbing harness, then clipped the safety lines onto the harness's metal rings. Nearby, Matt loaded a selection of tools from his toolbox into a large canvas tool bag hanging from his belt. He held up a roll of black electrical tape. Extra tape? John lifted his hand as Matt tossed him the roll. Thanks. He caught the roll, then dropped it into his own tool bag. Did you uh, text Vanessa? Ah, shit. I almost forgot. He dug his phone out and began typing, then stopped and gave an ironic chuckle. <laughs> no service. He tossed his useless phone onto the tailgate. She's gonna be pissed. Then let's make it quick. John unlocked the tower's elevator door. The folding grate clanked and squealed in protest as John slid it open and stepped inside. The elevator itself was nothing but a metal cage about the size of a small bathroom stall with an unadorned electrical box containing two large red buttons, one for up, one for down. Matt stepped into the elevator after him, closed the gate, then turned to face John. It was a tight fit. Their bodies were mere inches apart. Matt drew back his lips. Anything in my teeth? Oh, you got a pube right here. John pointed between his own front teeth. Oh, right. That's from your mom. Matt ran his tongue across his teeth and showed them again. How about now? Better. John punched the up button. The elevator rattled and groaned as it slowly lifted off the ground. And away we go. The ride to the top of the tower was quiet except for the rhythmic clank and whir of the elevator as it ascended. Little by little, the world below shrunk to miniature size. Given the remote location of the tower, the landscape was mostly treetops and rock formations. Its most notable feature was a sapphire blue lake not too far from where John had parked his truck. After 90 seconds or so, the elevator arrived at its apex about two-thirds of the way from the top of the tower. Matt opened the gate and stepped onto the small metal platform, then moved aside to allow John to exit past him. They had agreed that John would climb point, since he had the most experience with the model of cellular antenna used by this particular tower. Matt would climb behind him, passing him tools and providing an extra pair of hands as needed. Once out of the elevator, John made the tedious hand-over-hand -hand climb up the ladder to the top of the tower. Every few rungs, he had to connect one of his safety lines to the tower's frame, then reach down and disconnect the one he had previously connected. Doing it that way ensured that he always had a safety line attached in case he fell. About 15 feet below, Matt repeated the same process with his own safety lines. As John climbed, an unusual splash of color down by the lake, bright yellow and gold, caught his eye. He squinted into the wind, trying to make sense of what he was seeing. The color was in the shape of a rectangle. On top of it was an amorphous, multi-limbed pile of human flesh and hair, and the pile was moving. John chuckled as he realized what he was seeing. The pile of flesh was people. Two of them. It was a couple. Having sex next to the lake on what looked like a Los Angeles Lakers beach towel. 
The girl was on top, cowgirl style, which explained the confusing jumble of limbs. John whistled down at Matt. Hey! What's up? Check it out! John pointed down at the figures by the lake. It took a few seconds before Matt saw what John was pointing at. He started laughing. John began laughing too. Good times, right? Man, I wish I was them right now. I'd... (laughs) Suddenly, a blood-curdling scream echoed through the valley. John's heart leaped into his throat. The hell? He looked back down at the splash of color by the lake. The towel was still there, but the couple was gone. You hear that? Matt asked. Yeah. John's eyes scanned the landscape, trying to pinpoint where the people had gone. After a moment, he spotted the girl sprinting barefoot along the lake's edge. He traced his gaze along the lake until he spotted her boyfriend running a few yards behind her. Immediately following him was a man in full camouflage hunting gear and a floppy boonie hat. The man had a long, wooden object clutched in his hands, light-colored wood, a few feet long. A baseball bat? No. An axe. John watched in mute horror as the man swung the axe and brought it down squarely between the boyfriend's shoulder blades. The boyfriend stumbled and fell, his head striking the rocky ground and knocking him unconscious. The man with the axe straddled the guy's motionless body, yanked the weapon from his back, then raised it high in the air and brought it down again, and again, and again. The blood spilling from the boyfriend's body looked like a puddle of crude oil against the dark gray rock. Jesus Christ! Matt exclaimed. Are you seeing this? A surge of bile raced up the back of John's throat, muting his reply. Yeah. He choked. After a minute or so, the killer finished hacking at the boyfriend. The guy's head and upper body had been pulverized into a bloody pulp. One of his arms was detached from his body. It looked like a piece of crooked white driftwood that had washed up nearby. The killer balanced the handle of the axe against his shoulder and gazed down at his kill for a moment. Then he strode off into the trees at a calculated pace. John swallowed again, trying to regain his voice. Where's the girl? I don't know. Matt replied. I lost track of her. Shit. We gotta help her. Matt detached his safety line. Wait. John started, but Matt was already rapidly descending the ladder, back toward the elevator. John's stomach nodded as he watched Matt speed down the rungs, his untethered safety lines swinging in the wind. One slip, one missed step, and he would plummet to his death. Slow down. John called. As Matt made it to the platform, a desperate cry echoed through the forest directly below them. Help! The girl called. Please, someone, help us! A flock of small birds exploded from the trees at the base of the tower. The girl stumbled from the woods and into the clearing where John's truck was parked. She's down there. John called to Matt. Hey! He shouted to the girl. He waved, trying to draw her attention up the tower. Hey! Matt joined the chorus. Hey! Up here! Hey! Hello? The girl looked around frantically, trying to pinpoint where the voices were coming from. She didn't look up. Instead, she ran to John's truck and tried to open the passenger side door. It was locked. She sprinted around to the driver's side and tried that door. Locked. 
She pounded on the window in frustration. She stood on her tiptoes and looked into the bed of the pickup. She spotted the toolbox and Matt's phone. It was still on the tailgate where he had left it after trying to text Vanessa. With a squeal of hope, the girl ran around the back of the pickup, grabbed the phone, and tapped in three numbers, 911. John's heart sank as he realized what was about to happen. Call failed. The girl wailed with frustration. Come on, come on! She whimpered as she tried dialing again. Again, the call failed. Come on! She screamed. Connect, goddammit! She tried a third time, failed again. Your key! Matt shouted to John. What? Throw me your key! What are you gonna do? I'm going down. He indicated the elevator. I'll take her to get help. I'll come with you. John began to detach his own safety lines. There's no time. If I don't go now, this girl is going to die. And I'm not going to let that happen. Now throw me the key. John knew Matt was right. The killer could be mere seconds away. Time was of the essence. With one hand still clinging to the tower, he dug his fingers into his chest pocket and pulled out the truck's key fob. He hung as low as he could from the rung where he was tied and dropped the key to Matt. Matt looked up at John with the key gripped in his fist. I'll be back. Then he swung into the elevator, closed the cage, and began the grinding, clanking descent to the ground. As the elevator disappeared down the tower, John considered what to do in the meantime. It was hard to fathom continuing the job after just seeing a guy get axed murdered. But the antenna would have to be repaired at some point. The sooner he fixed it, the sooner they could call for help. He was about to start climbing down when a scream of terror drew his attention back to the ground. The girl was standing in the bed of the pickup truck, a hammer from the toolbox held out defensively in front of her. John followed her gaze to see the killer emerging from the woods at the edge of the clearing, the bloody axe weighing heavily in his hands. Get away from me! The girl shrieked. The killer rested the axe handle on his shoulder and calmly approached the truck. The girl swung the hammer feebly in his direction. Leave me alone! The killer lunged at the girl. She screamed, then hurtled over the side of the truck bed and onto the ground. The killer began circling the vehicle toward her. The girl scrambled to her feet and fled along the side of the pickup in the opposite direction. The killer changed directions. The girl did too, keeping the body of the truck between herself and the killer. From his bird's eye view, John watched the killer faint toward the front of the truck as the girl took the bait and moved toward the back. The killer dropped to his belly and slid underneath the vehicle. The girl froze, confused, unsure of which direction the killer had gone. John yelled as loud as he could. Hey! This time, the girl seemed to hear him. She looked up at the tower. John pointed frantically at the ground. He's under the truck! What? The girl screamed. He's under the truck! The girl's eyes went wide as she realized what John was saying, but it was too late. The killer's axe swung from under the truck and sliced through the girl's Achilles tendon, severing her foot at the ankle. The girl wailed in agony and fell to the ground, blood spurting from her injured leg. As the girl writhed in pain, the killer slid out from under the truck, dusted the dirt from his pants, then bent down and picked up his axe. Regaining her faculties for a moment, the girl managed to roll onto her backside propelling herself away from the killer with her one good foot. 
A thick trail of bright red blood stained the pale dirt as it poured from her wound, filling the rut left by her dragging stump. Hey, cocksucker! Matt's voice rang out from below, followed by the clattering of the elevator gate slamming open. Leave her alone! The killer spun the axe in a full circle like a batter loosening his wrist before an at-bat, then pivoted toward the tower. He cocked his head curiously. Yeah, that's right, Matt growled. Bring it on, motherfucker! The killer headed for Matt's position, disappearing from John's view as he passed under the tower. John leaned away from the tower as far as his reach would allow, but he was unable to see what was happening on the ground directly below. He listened helplessly to the metallic bangs and crashes echoing up the tower, clearly the sounds of a brutal struggle between Matt and the killer. Hoping for some hint at what was happening, he shifted his gaze to the girl to see how she was reacting. Unfortunately, she wasn't. She was slumped on the ground, unconscious. Suddenly, the racket stopped. Everything fell eerily silent. The only sound John could hear was the wail of the wind and the rise and fall of his breathing. Matt? He shouted. Matt, you okay? There was no answer. Matt? He yelled again. Nothing. After a few seconds of excruciating silence, a metallic rattle echoed up from the ground, followed by the whine of an electric motor starting to turn. John's breath caught in his throat. The elevator was coming back up. John looked down at the platform 30 feet below him, then up at the top of the tower, about 20 feet above. It didn't matter which way he climbed. Either direction he went, he was trapped. With one shaking hand, he reached into the tool bag attached to his belt to assess what he might use to defend himself. He had some screwdrivers, an adjustable wrench, a ratchet kit, a few specialized electronics for testing the antenna, and a spare roll of tape that Matt had tossed him when they were suiting up. John drew out the roll of tape and turned it over in his hand. An idea formed in his mind. The elevator continued its ascent as John prepared to make his last stand. The tower might be a trap, but it could also be an advantage. The killer couldn't hold an axe and climb the ladder at the same time. He would need his hands free to grip the rungs. That leveled the playing field a little bit and gave John a fighting chance. If he could draw the killer up the tower, he could jump off of the ladder, using his falling momentum to grab the killer and yank him off the rungs. The safety lines would halt John's descent while the killer plummeted to his death. And if that didn't work, there was always plan B. Brutal, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Just as John finished winding the last of the spare roll of tape around his hand, the elevator slowed to a halt. It had arrived. John double-checked his safety lines one last time. He tightened his grip on the ladder, took a deep breath, and prepared to meet his fate. The elevator gate rattled open. John could see the outline of the killer's boonie hat through the slotted roof of the elevator. Along with a glimpse of the axe's wooden handle, he tensed as a camouflage-clad figure emerged into the light and fell backward, crashing flat onto the metal platform outside the elevator. It was the killer, dead. His eyes wide open, his face slicked with blood, his axe buried in the middle of his forehead. Matt stepped out of the elevator and onto the platform next to the killer's body. He looked up at John. Dude, what the fuck are you doing? John gazed down at Matt, his mouth agape. His friend's face was battered and beaten, with a torrent of blood streaming down his cheek from a gash over his eyebrow. 
His nose was squashed sideways. His lip was split. His eye was swollen shut. He looked like hell, but he was alive. And he was laughing. What? John said, unsure of what his friend found so funny about the situation. What, are you fucking Wolverine now? John looked at his hand. In his shock at seeing his friend return alive, he had completely forgotten what he had done to prepare for his encounter with the killer. Weaponizing his fist, using Matt's extra tape to attach screwdrivers to the back of his hand, one behind each finger, he had intended to fashion a weapon he could use still having fingers free to grip the ladder. But it ended up looking like a discount hardware store version of Wolverine's famous adamantium cloth. It was plan B, John said. That made Matt laugh even harder. After a few seconds, John joined in. They laughed until tears streamed down their faces. Then John climbed down the ladder and embraced his friend. After a quiet moment, they separated. John looked down at the killer's body. What do we do with him? Fuck him. Leave him up here for the vultures. John stepped into the elevator. Matt followed, then closed the gate. As they began their descent, Matt spoke again. Anything in my teeth? He drew back his busted lip. One of his front teeth was missing. You've got a little something right here. John pointed at his own front tooth using one of the screwdrivers taped to his hand. Matt ran his tongue across his teeth, then showed them again. The tooth was still missing. How about now? Better. Much better. I hope you enjoyed No Signal, as written by Warren Benedetto, and performed by Steve Gray, Melissa Medina, and Olivia Steele. Warren Benedetto writes short fiction about horrible people doing horrible things. He's a full member of the SWFA and has published dozens of stories in publications such as Dark Matter Magazine and The Dread Machine, on podcasts such as the No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, the creepy podcast, and Scare You to Sleep, and anthologies from Scare Street, Ghost Orchid Press, Erie River Publishing, and more. When he's not writing, he works as Director of Global Product Strategy at PlayStation, where he holds 30-plus patents for various types of gaming technology. He's also the developer of Stay Focused, the world's most popular anti-procrastination app for writers. He built it while procrastinating. For more information, visit www.warrenbenedetto.com and follow at Warren Benedetto on Twitter. I'm temporary host Otis Jerry, and you can hear more of me on my very own show here on the network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. And on that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network as well. We have Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories, brought to you from the Heartland, airing on Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. 
We hope you check him out. Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs on Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ShillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host for the evening, Otis Jerry, and as always, it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.